everyone, I'm Yumi Kendall. And I'm Joseph Conyers. And welcome to Tacit No More, a podcast where we are no longer silent, asking the questions that need to be asked and saying the things that need to be said about classical music. Tacit No More is an optimist's playground and landing pad for positive discussions about our belief in the power of music to better humanity. And we will invite voices from all sectors to inspire us in the work we do on and off the stage. Joe and I have been friends for nearly 25 years and have over 40 years between us as professional musicians. We've had the best of conversations. Would you join us? Hey, everybody. Welcome. Hi. Hey, Yumi. Hi, Joe. <laughs> How are you? Funny, funny seeing you here. That's right. I guess we're doing this. It's like a real thing now. I think it is. A it's podcast. Yep. Wow. It's wow. Happening. So we're supposed to talk and keep people interested and... Yeah. Just like the old days. <laughs> right? Gosh, that was a long time ago. <laughs> um, no, this is a lot of fun. I'm really excited about this project because we're in a, a field where I think sometimes we're, we're, we're more appreciated when we're seen and not heard. But you know what I'm trying to say about yes. that. <laughs> okay. Yes. I understand. In a lot of ways, people want to hear us, but they don't actually... Want to yeah. hear us. Yes, exactly. So, um, it, so it's neat to, to create the space where... Yeah, where we can talk kind of freely just about the industry and try to make things better. I, it makes me excited. I'm likewise very excited about this. I think we've been talking about talking about it for a very long time, and, <laughs> and here we are. Yes. And we've known each other for quite a long time. I think it was the summer before going to college, That's going to right. Curtis, that we met in Verbier. But I do not remember the specific... I think oh, I Mahler do. Mahler 6 in the... In the with Sarah in the Hicks. bus depot, in the bus yes, depot? I do remember that very well. <laughs> I remember that very vividly because I I never played with an orchestra of that caliber, and I just about dropped my bass at the beginning of Mahler Six to that sound. The from from from. I've never been a part of anything like that. That was really exciting. But we met at at that I forgot his name. It was at, at a like a. Um, uh, oh, it was like a cafe place. Do you remember? It was that, outdoor. And, it indoor, was a, outdoor. It was indoors, and there was this chef guy who was always there, but it was like, I can't remember, it was like a cafe place. Oh, dear. Um, I don't remember. Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, I feel like <laughs> that's where we may have actually first met. Wow. Yes. I might remember this because I may have written it down in a journal. Okay. Yes. Wow. I woke up the journal. Maybe I'll read that. Maybe that can be like like extra. Tass no more extra. Joe's, Joe's, that, Joe's thoughts that, as an 18 year old. <laughs> I did have my first drink in Verbier. Oh, did you really? I did. As a 17 year old, yes. I did not. That I will remain tacit about knowing <laughs> my parents might listen to this. <laughs> oh, man. So this is great. Well, I guess it's important for folks to know. I mean, they've heard us banter, but they don't know who we are. Well, okay, allow me to introduce you. <laughs> okay. I would love to. Um, Joe is, um, gosh, he's everything, <laughs> but specific to music. Let's see, after school, your first job was as principal bass in the Grand Rapids Symphony. That is correct. For three and a half years. Yes. And while also doing Santa Fe Opera yes. in the summers. And amazing then, time, amazing time. I remember learning most of my operas via you. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and then you went to Atlanta Symphony yes. for a short bit before you won your assistant principal position with the Philadelphia Orchestra, which was June 1st, a Tuesday, at about 3.30, <laughs> because I remember auditing, I was listening in uh. on that, and so I could cheer you on um, from behind the screen. Um, but I remember that day vividly, because I ran out. I remember it too, and, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty impactful day. Yes. Well, another another one for all of us um, is that you just recently won the principal bass position of the Philadelphia Orchestra. Yeah, that one's still that one's still really fresh. It is very fresh. That's weird to hear. And we're so excited. Um, in addition to all of this, you are the founder and vision director of, of Project Four Forty. Um, which we can talk about sure. many, many times yes. on here. Um, he's also the artistic director of artistic development of Boston University Tanglewood Institute, Go which I went to in '96, and you've obviously attended as 98. well. '98. Yeah, you're getting it warm for me. 
<laughs> that was that was an incredible song. Uh, yeah, great times. Um, Joe is also the music director of All City Orchestra here, right here in Philadelphia, and he's also on the faculty of Juilliard, and affiliated in pretty much every possible way with Sphinx <laughs> from the very beginning. From the very beginning, that's right. I, there's so many that laureate and awards and yes. yeah, I, we can amazing talk about organization, all of that. absolutely incredible organization. <laughs> Sphinx is a nonprofit organization based in Detroit whose mission is to transform lives through the power of diversity in the arts. And also a frequent guest artist and uh, guest chamber musician with, um, again, pretty much any organization you'd wanna, <laughs> you want to hear in chamber music. Um, so this is, that's Joe in a, in a nutshell, as they might say. <laughs> oh, that's great. And you, me. So actually, I'll, I will claim Savannah, Georgia. I'm a, a Georgia boy. Beautiful city for the folks who haven't been there. It is really pretty. It wasn't burned. That's why it's, why it's it, may, yeah. it, it maintained its, 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 um, the story is they, yeah. they, with Sherman's march to the sea, mm-hmm. Savannah's like, don't burn our city. Mm-hmm. And he didn't, and was offered as a gift to the North. Yes. Wow. The, I guess near the end of the Civil War. Wow, there's a lot of history there. Yes, and we're going to move on to, to happier things. Yes. <laughs> Although we don't want to dismiss all of the very important things that we can also uh, yes, talk about yes. other, as part of history. Absolutely. So Yumi Kendall is from, now I'm going to see if I get this right, born in Colorado? Oh, no, but I won't tell you where I was born because that's a security question. So we can pretend <laughs> I was born in Colorado. <laughs> okay. <laughs> At one point, at some point in her youth, lived in Colorado. Absolutely, yes. That's right. Great right. memories of the red iron, flat irons. That's, oh, yes, yeah. cool. And, uh, um, uh, but grew up in the D.C. area. Yes. Absolutely. And <laughs> she is a Suzuki Woo-hoo! student. Not only is she a Suzuki student, but she has connections to Suzuki that most people people do not have. Do you well, want to talk can't, to us? Can't have. Can't have. <laughs> That's true. Because we can't help who we're born to. <laughs> Tell but, us about that. But we can help the traits that we want to carry on. Right. right. Um, but yeah, my American grandfather, ironically not my Japanese grandfather, my American grandfather is credited with um, introducing the Suzuki education of, from Japan, he introduced that to the Americas back in the 1960s. And <gasps> Amazing. Then, um, so it, I grew up thinking that everybody plays an instrument <laughs> and doesn't everybody's extended family get together at the holidays and play Messiah or <laughs> like Haydn string quartets with the like second violin part hub, subbed out for horn or That's whatever awesome. instruments we had on hand, whoever playing them. So it's a very um, musically inclined yes i very much grew up with suzuki as well because my twin sister plays cello and my older brother um plays violin or they played they they have not either played in a long time collecting dust now. that's right yeah but a lot lots of suzuki in the house and i appreciate suzuki the most because the tunes were so good they're amazing they're, they're great tunes for they're just great melodies yeah yeah it's... anyway i've always loved that um but i digress um, she is a Waldorf girl. Woohoo! Um, K through 12! K through, that's, wow, that makes you very special. <laughs> well, some other people would say that in a different, yeah. Well, unique. We would always joke that we were unique. Talk to us a little bit about Waldorf, just like in a nutshell, like a, a sentence for those who don't know about the Waldorf tradition. Uh, so Waldorf education, the curriculum is based on and reflects the child's development. Mm. So some of my strongest memories, like for example, fourth grade, we started to learn about geography and we learned about place. Mm. And we first drew a map, a bird's eye view map of our own desk, which we all had our own desk with our own name. And we each drew our own desk and how you, where you put your pencil and where you put your main lesson books and your study, your, your, your glue or whatever. And then we walked the school, did the same thing, bird's eye view perspective of the school, Mm -hmm. the school grounds, like out to the perimeter. Then we walked Great Falls and hiked. So, and then we had to do our own map to our own house and all this. Then we went to the state of Maryland at the time and we walked Great Falls and we did a map of the whole state. And so it expanded, as you can see, there's like concentric circles. And my understanding of geography is not about memorizing names or play. it's about a sense of place yeah. and a sense of belonging yeah. 
and that resonates with me still. And I, anyway, there are many, I, I remember looking <laughs> through like the then 1999 World Book Encyclopedia and memorizing all of the countries in Africa. And like, of course, it's changed a lot now, but in, in the world, just being fascinated with this idea of yeah. place. Yeah. And, and now I understand the word belonging, of course, in our, our language now more. Um, and another example, which will be brief, but seventh grade, which is when many, many of us are going through, like, our pushback against parents and finding our independence. Mm -hmm. That is when Waldorf Education incorporates the explorers. Mm. And, of course, now I'm sure they've incorporated more um, diverse explorers mm -hmm. in that whole topic. Um, but the idea is that the, the resonance of exploration is so connected to what the child or the the preteen is going through yeah. in their life that it sticks with us much more. So that's a very long-winded way of <laughs> explaining Waldorf education, but it's actually so embedded in who I am and part of my family's perspective and our our my philosophy and my brothers and our extended family are all deeply embedded in Suzuki and Waldorf education mm -hmm. both. Um so I I I lean back on and lean into those philosophies deeply in yeah. my own thinking. I remember you talking about it a lot when we were starting. So that makes sense. If you were in it that long, yeah. so, <laughs> then, then you were no, no longer in it. So you had right. to reference it. <laughs> right, right, right. So that's, 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 that's cool. Um, and then after uh, some time at the Curse Institute of Music, where we, of course, has been established that we met and worked together and learned together and had a lot of fantastic musical experiences together. And studied a uh, history of Western Stiv Absolutely. a Absolutely, <laughs> we did. <laughs> I would say it was a, 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 um, a class that reminded me of being in school. <laughs> negative about my wonderful <laughs> education. The one class I heard is that felt like it was an actual class. <laughs> we learned many things. There was a lot. To, we had to take many notes. Uh, but yeah, that was a very special class. Lots of tests. Again, a little bit of a dig digressing there. But uh, after our time there, Yumi... One. Basically, I, I practiced a lot, and then Joe <laughs> coached me a lot, especially Don Juan. But Joe was my coach, and then I won a job. Well, you won a job <laughs> as a assistant principal cellist of the Philadelphia Orchestra at the um, Wise and... and um, <laughs> I have a cane. <laughs> That's right. Uh, uh, age of 22 years old, which is pretty incredible. But, and we'll talk about this later, but she didn't start right away because Yumi still had more to learn. So well, I still do. <laughs> so she did another year in school before starting her job, which is very, very cool. I, I won that job at the beginning of my fifth year at Curtis. And uh, I won't give you the date of the audition because, again, another security <laughs> But it was in the beginning of the year, and I decided I might as well finish out the year. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's very cool. Um, and after playing the orchestra for maybe about 10 years, nine to 10 years, eight to 10 years? 13? Was it 13 years in? Well, I started 2004. Oh, so yeah, 13. Absolutely. That's absolutely correct. You, me, was not done. Like, so most people, I mean, we already talked about being in school, like, Five years, and that was enough for me because I've not received any more education since my time at, at, at Curtis. But Yumi had not had enough. She, need, she needed more. So in 2017, she went back to school, got her master's in applied positive psychology. I mentioned this to my sister, and she laughed out loud. She was like, what was that? So do you want <laughs> That's it? why we just call it MAP. MAP. M-A-P-P. <laughs> Talk to us about what a master's, y'all listen, a master's in applied Positive psychology is. <laughs> um, positive psychology is the social science of what makes humans thrive. And it's about the science of well-being. Mm. And I was interested in studying that. And fortunately, I got into this program at the University of Pennsylvania. So I was able to, like, Uber back and forth. And I probably should have taken a sabbatical. <laughs> that was a bit, but she did a bit not. crazy. And I was already pretty good with time management, and it got even more refined in that year. Um, but I, uh, 
it's a great community. It's a whole other wealth of knowledge and experience that I was really interested in for um, organizational development mm. and creating healthy arts organizations so that we can continue to do with even more effectiveness what we love to do so much. That's awesome. So Yumi's credentials as um, uh, a master's from University of Pennsylvania in applied positive psychology. Joseph's credentials is my blood type is B positive. And so that, <laughs> that, 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 is, that it gives me the credentials to talk about positivity. Does that work? It, it more than works because um, education, of course, is not formal in an institution, a brick and mortar institution, but what you've given to the world already is making it immensely more positive oh, and a better place. So I appreciate that. I, I would, I would, we don't, Waldorf doesn't grade, so I wouldn't even have given you any grade <laughs> because any grade you did get would be off the charts. <laughs> well, I appreciate that, but my mom would still love to see the master's degree. Uh, <laughs> it's Maybe one day, one, one day, mom. Okay, so um, now you know a little bit about us. Um, now, like, just, just, I guess, a little intro into, like, why we started doing this. So I just had a, Joe, you gave me a, a chance to um, sort of expound on, on Be, some of my... Because you're Yumi Kendall. ...bio moments. <laughs> um, but I, I realized in hindsight I would love to hear more about um, sort of the essence of Project 440 and how uh -huh. that's... I remember Project 440 and its former names and iterations yes. and actually talking about it in school. Yes. And your aha moment. And yes. So is there, is there a version of that you can share with us? Yeah, sure. I mean... So basically, Project 440 started in Savannah as an organization to fill a void left in music education by the absence of the orchestra, which had filed for Chapter 7 bankruptcy in 2003. Mm -hmm. um, and then speaking with two other founding members, we just wanted to go to Savannah and just introduce kids to music. Mm -hmm. But not only introduce kids to music, also let them know that there was a life that could be lived outside of the world outside of the world that they may be experiencing. Mm -hmm. the, and that the world was excited about having them be a part of it, and they could bring whatever they learned right, right back to home as mm -hmm. we had gone off to school and were coming back to do with our own work. And so that's what we did, and we, I mean, it was an amazing experience. Um, when I won the job in Atlanta, I mean, uh, in Philadelphia, I was in Atlanta at the time, we decided to move the organization to Philadelphia, mm -hmm. And uh, we started to shift our focus from kind of teaching young people about the like music and 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 creating connection through through music to using music as a tool to teach these life skills needed to thrive. Mm -hmm. Put that on top of mm -hmm. <laughs> um, my working with the school district, which I started to do maybe three or four years into my time in Philadelphia. And I started to directly see the needs of young people, mm -hmm. many young people who are in music and really want to make music part of their life, but we're still lacking these things to help them be successful as musicians, but also just as people. And that's how Project 40 morphed into the organization that is now, where we use music literally as a lens to teach high school students the skills, the life skills, or the durable skills mm -hmm. um, needed to, to thrive. Yeah. And I'm excited about the work. It's a little off the beaten path because we don't actually teach music programs. Mm -hmm. We literally use music as a lens, so there is no barrier to entry mm -hmm. for any uh, school participant. And it's uh, we're genre agnostic completely. And uh, it's just wonderful to be able to meet young people from all around the city of Philadelphia um, who, through our program, can develop the agency of like, oh, I do have a place. You're talking mm -hmm. about place. I do have a place in this world, and I have a I have the agency to affect change in that world, mm -hmm. make it better, and bring others along the way with me. So that's kind of Project Performing in a nutshell. Um, uh, it's so powerful to see <laughs> the work and um, to see you and the personal connections you've made. I remember when you told me early on, why hasn't anybody just knocked on the door down the street? Yeah at the school, like we are so physically close yes. to so many schools. Yes. And Joe, you've made that connection and you made it happen. Well, you mean, and I will say this pretty openly because I, I don't think the environment we are in is unique. Um, I just, I, yeah, I found it very strange that here we have this institution, <laughs> yeah. uh, this major arts institution that I'm a part of, 
and then another art institution, but related to the school district. Mm -hmm. And there was no connection between the two, no formal one at least, not at the time. And I literally, you mean, this is what you have to do sometimes. I literally, I, they all, they think I'm crazy. They, and they, they still think I'm crazy. But they particularly thought I was crazy mm -hmm. when I rang the doorbell and said, Hi, I'm from the Philadelphia Orchestra. Mm -hmm. I would love to work with your kids. Is there anything I can do? And then just silence and stares mm -hmm. um, until I started going once or twice a week. It was pr rather often working with the low strings. Mm -hmm. And that was my connection to the district. And that's when I, they, they eventually asked me <laughs> to become the music director, the conductor of the All City Orchestra. But, um, and again, with my work in Project 40, I started to directly see what the mm -hmm. needs of students in Philadelphia were mm -hmm. and uh, want to provide an avenue for the students to get the resources they need to find the success that they wanted in life. Yeah. It's just speechless, but yes, every time. <laughs> oh, man. No, but it's great. It's great work, and it, 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 it fuels me a lot. Um, we'll, we'll probably talk about this later, but it gives me purpose in a lot of work that I do, particularly when I've been doing it for now a long time, almost 20 years in the, in, in the business directly, um, playing in an orchestra. Uh, and it's so funny, because actually I feel like this is a great segue to talk about, like, even going back to the podcast, mm -hmm. just having conversations about these things yeah. um, uh, in an open forum, hopefully to inspire others in different ways. Yeah. Thinking differently to celebrate thought outside the box. Yes. Because I feel like our industry can be a little boxed in when it comes to yeah. um, uh, innovation and engagement and... Yeah. Um, and sometimes it takes a little act, like walking down the street of your neighbor and ringing their doorbell yeah. and asking them what they need. That can make a difference. So, again. And here you are. And here we are because <laughs> it's expanded and, um, and clearly inspiring other people and other organizations to behave similarly, um, hopefully, and <laughs> with continuation. Um, I remember back in school, um, if you don't mind me asking, if you want to oh, share, okay. but I remember back in school, you shared um, this moment when you were in the car with, I think it was your mom and oh, sister, wow. yes. and your aha moment yes. for Project 440. Yes. I haven't even told the story in a long time, because I have so many stories. That's what happens you get, oh, well, you get so many stories. <laughs> you just start to lose track of all the stories. No, that's a, that's a good one. We were in um, uh, Southwest Georgia. My dad is from Southwest Georgia just north of Florida, actually, just north of Tallahassee. We were in a, uh, uh, obviously, an impoverished, uh, under-resourced neighborhood. And um, there are these kids playing on a porch. And my mom said, among one of those kids could be a genius, an Einstein. And no one would ever know. And that has always resonated with me. Because whenever I see young people without opportunity, I just think, well, what if they did have that opportunity? In those young people, or in that young person, could be the next genius, the next Yo-Yo Ma, the, 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 the next Einstein, the cure for cancer. Mm -hmm. But we don't give them the opportunity. Worse, society seems to think that's okay. Right. It, 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 to me, it's like the society can very sadly turn a blind eye to the real needs uh, of communities uh, 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 that need th those resources. Mm -hmm. So I, thinking about my parents' life and where they came from and where their parents came from and the opportunity I, that I was given and the sacrifices for sure that my parents uh, made so I could have what I have uh, and have been able to achieve, I, I literally, I can't think of anything else I can be charged to do, but make sure someone else gets that same opportunity and as many as possible. And I mean, and we were going to probably dive into this later and I mean, welcome to our podcast because we're just talk talking, <laughs> but, <Hi. laughs> but, uh, uh, I, it's, it's, that was one of the reasons I walked down the street when I got here. I remember coming to Philadelphia and the, the area the orchestra's in, like many orchestras, is in a very nice part of Philadelphia. Uh, and it just seemed like there was this massive disconnect between the needs of what the community um, uh, uh, needed. And I, 
to this day, maybe call, call me strange, it won't be the first time, um, <laughs> uh, but I just said, why, what can we do? We have this wonderful thing in music. We have this wonderful thing in, in um, being able to share our souls with people through a medium that connects all of us. I mean, th th there might be some conversations about culturally and the music, blah, 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 mm -hmm. but music itself, mm -hmm. let's take the classical moniker off, mm -hmm. but the music itself, how it connects, how can we use that? Mm -hmm. I, we, our industry is focused on so much on giving the performance and making people happy that way, and that's which is great, and that's important. I love it, it's wonderful. Don't come yeah. after me, y'all. But, yep. <laughs> yep. but how could we use that then to have conversations across um, um, aisles or across streets or across zip codes in ways that without the music it would be much harder to do. Mm -hmm. Why can't music be the entry point right. uh, to unite these parts of, uh, uh, of society that seem to be so disconnected? Mm -hmm. um, so I, 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 I mean, I, I feel very strongly like if I have a role in trying to make those connections, then I want to play it, mm -hmm. and I want to do it to the best of my ability, because that, to me, is what gives purpose to my being on the stage. Mm -hmm. It does. Yes. And it makes playing the concerts even that much more exciting yeah. and engaging to me, because it, it, it's not just about playing a perfect performance, mm -hmm. but it's playing a performance that connects mm -hmm. in more ways than one. Yeah. It, this reminds me of so many conversations from early on, because... I remember in my early Suzuki teacher training to become a Suzuki teacher, yeah. um, there's a prerequisite course called Every Child Can, mm. ECC, and it's just dubbed. But everybody in, anybody who's Suzuki trained yep. and officially trained through the proper programs and everything, but it's, it's called Every Child Can. And I feel like so many of your and my conversations over the years have revolved around that principle yeah. and this, the, the, that, that fundamental belief that every child has potential yes and it's about making sure that we provide opportunities for all of them and that is the nuts and bolts inspiration for and your mom's comment yeah. in passing has stuck with you yes about that child could be the next einstein and nobody would know it well because you maybe, mean maybe we'll change that's that. right <laughs> um uh, but i'll just say because i'm not supposed to exist I'm a, I'm a black kid from Savannah, Georgia, whose parents had no connection to classical music. I'm literally not, I mean, statistically, absolutely not. But for my parents giving me the opportunity, making sure that we were part of a community, and then there were so many others um, uh, that came in and helped me and my family at the time that we needed it. We was just in Savannah. I was able to celebrate that with some of my, my, my former teachers. Um, that now I have this, 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 I mean, who would guess? I, mean, I just, who would guess that would be, I mean, I'd say it's out loud. It's going to be very strange. So work with me for a second. But principal base of the Philadelphia Orchestra. Like it's, it's, um, it was only because I was given the opportunity. And I just think about, and I see these kids. I mean, that's the other thing. Now, I mean, I'm, I'm not at the point where I'm imagining that kids have this opportunity. I'm seeing them mm -hmm. that they have so much potential, mm -hmm. and they just need to have their, that potential realized. Mm -hmm. And that will just fuel me until the day I'm done on the earth. So, mm -hmm. that's that. <laughs> you did share where your parents came from, or like a little bit about mm -hmm. your, like I'm not supposed to be here and yep. under that guy's, and like like there was there was like things about your your family's history that. Yes under that support like how much effort has gone into your success and how collective that yeah. and you're very humble to say that it's a collective effort right because um, not even just them but, it's well because then if you want to start going into history it's right, the, all course, the people who the, paved the way yes and all the people um uh yeah seen and unseen uh right. heard and unheard right. who who paved the way so, like I said in the, in the um, article that Peter Dobrin wrote, yeah. um, this is not my, this is not my, <laughs> my win, this is our win. This mm -hmm. is something that's collective. Yeah. Uh, because I'm not, I'm not the first because I'm the first who was able right. or had the ability. I'm the first because I was given, I, I had a chance to actually realize the potential to, to become the first in the space. Yep. So, yeah. <laughs>
my origin story or my a, a big part of my current version of myself is the and I get asked a lot why did I go to grad school when I've already got a great career and I I, I still do <laughs> <laughs> um, and I'm happy in it and loving the challenges um, and rewards I found myself at Penn because um, when the orchestra went through its Chapter 11 reorganization back in 2010, um, the orchestra morale was really low, including mine, and I felt helpless. I don't like feeling helpless. I like to know what I can do to help. Mm. I, like to, I like to contribute, and I want to be active. And I found myself in the Barnes & Noble book bookstore like looking at the looking at the business section like all these red books on leadership and authority and change and power and and I came across many books and I read a lot uh, two stuck out one was by Dan Pink called Drive the surprising truth about intrinsic motivation and the other book was by Adam Grant at Horton called Give and Take and both these books were pivotal. I was actually with one of my best friends from Waldorf, Glenda, mm. who's a professor at Penn. And she said, you know, what if you just email these authors and ask them what do they think or let them know you like their work? And I wrote to both and thanking them for their contribution, their work, and asking, are there implications for your research in the classical industry? Do you, are you aware of anything that might be of interest and help? Um, sincerely, you know, Yumi, a Philadelphia Orchestra <laughs> cellist. And uh, I wrote this on a Sunday night, uh, 2015, I think it was December 28th. And uh, the next morning at 7.21, I got Adam Grant's like auto reply email, and which was very substantive and, and very interesting <laughs> with all of the links and everything. And then like two minutes later, I got a personal email back connecting me in with the directors at the Positive Psychology Center at Penn saying thank you and, and making all the connections. And pretty promptly thereafter, the connections started with emails flying back and forth. And it turns out the class, which of course I didn't know at the time was MAP, they were attending the Philadelphia Orchestra concert two weeks later wow. as part of their Humanities and Human Flourishing course in the Positive Psychology program. And I talked with the director. He emailed me and said, is, it, is there any chance... We could meet after the concert. You know, this is really fascinating. We'd love to meet with you. And I, I said, yeah, sure, great. Let's. <laughs> so we brought them backstage. We chatted in the lounge for after the concert on Saturday night. And then around 11 p.m. or so, he said, this was James Powalski. He said, well, and Dan Lerner and um, Jonathan Coopersmith. And he said, well, you know, are you available at, by any chance tomorrow morning to come up to Penn to help the students debrief their concert experience. This was the first concert experience for many of the students. And I was like, uh, <laughs> the University of Pennsylvania? <laughs> you want me to be up there? And I, I said, yes, because it's an opportunity. I had to rearrange a student a schedule for the next morning. I was like, what do you wear? <laughs> I had to drink coffee because it was at 8 a.m. And that was early for me then on the Sunday morning. And um, I found my way up there. I was like sweating. My armpits were soggy. <laughs> I was so nervous. And I was and I went up to Horton and um, Huntsman Hall and went into the room and the students were asking us really fascinating questions um, about their own experience as audience mm. members and about what they saw on stage. Everything from the movement of the string players and the differences in apparent engagement from their perspectives to the music, to the concert experience, to the repertoire, to the person with the baton mm -hmm. who asked the question and didn't know the word conductor. Um, so very honest questions and honest observations and fascinating conversation. I loved it. I felt so energized. And I, after the class, I talked to James and I'm like, who are these students? They're not all like 22-year-olds undergrads. Some are older folks who, you know, might be in their other career, end of their career or something. What's, oh, this is a, this is a course designed for working professionals looking to reinvigorate their professions. 
And I was like, ding, 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 could ding, I ding, take ding. this? <laughs> yeah, the applications are due in a month and this and that. And I had to get all my coursework and grades and cheap, everything together, recommendation letters and this and that. Long story short, I got in. Yeah. And um, that was the essence of it was actually why I ended up in that bookstore was I wanted to find out how can I yeah. help? How can I understand what we're do- what about motivation? What is it about, um, I actually asked in class, when it was a safe place to ask things, and we're on our podcast, so here we are. <laughs> but I actually asked, can we, how do you know intrinsic motivation when you see it? Is there a way of identifying that? And Adam Grant was actually the course, he was like, Yumi, are you asking about auditions? <laughs> <laughs> but I, I was actually asking more about the long term. Um, anyway, there are a lot of questions, yeah. and we can unpack Many of those, um, but it was just such a beautiful place to ask questions and the science of well-being and the science of healthy organizations and the what what makes us thrive at the individual and the dyadic or the relational level and at the collective level. I was so fascinated with all of that. And um, that's my why for where I am now and for why I'm so excited about our podcast Mm -hmm is for bringing to light each of our own whys, like why we're doing what we're doing, and how we can make that come to fruition as institutions as well to help the opportunities for the next generation. Yeah. Yumi, it's so interesting you say that. And the way, first of all, it's an amazing story. (laughs) And I I love how that has shaped your why and, and what you see for the future. And I think... What that makes me think about is, given the, <laughs> given this platform, given the name of the, the, the podcast, something I even talk to my students about, maybe more behind closed doors than mm-hmm. on open mics for the whole world to hear. <laughs> um, uh, but I think it will, it will help lay the... Um, the the kind of or at least show the framework of my thought processes in being part of of something like this. I'll start off by saying I love music a lot, like a whole lot, <laughs> like a whole whole lot. <laughs> I really do. It's 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 so much of my essence. Uh, it's so much of my soul. Uh, so much so that I literally feel like a kid in the candy store every time I get the opportunity to play on the stage with the fabulous Philadelphians or, or by myself in a community center with uh, um, a whole bunch of kids who've never seen an instrument like mine before. It, it just all brings me such great joy. That coupled with these, this idea, this almost manic fear of like, what's next? How are we going to survive? Will we ever make it? Like, I, and, and it's, it, our, I've already told you, like, I feel like there, there's so many things we can do we, um, uh, as far as musicians, how we can be in the world. And so that's been a, a cognitive dissonance for me to have so much energy. Like, even, even when I was uh, growing up in Savannah, people were like, well, what are you going to do? And I, like, they were kind of very much against the idea of going into music. But that aside, here I am in living in these two worlds. One where I just love the music so much and I love sharing it. And another world where it just seems like, oh, we just don't know how we're going to. Doom and gloom. Doom and gloom. Dark and rainy skies. (laughs) Cold, windy. (laughs) Just uh, not a lot of hope and optimism. And. So then I felt like, and this was mainly in my 30s, Yumi, how am I most going to be helpful for this profession? This thing I love so much. Am I most helpful being on the stage sharing it in the Hollywood halls of Horizon? That's the name of our concert hall. Sharing it with this select group of people who've, who've opted in to be part of this experience? Or is there a role I could play outside that would be more impactful, that might even take me away from the stage 
but make sure that others have opportunity to be connected to it and have it part of their life. That's something we don't talk about very often in our profession. And I often felt not only did I have this, this, the, these two things in my life, but I was being forced to make a choice mm -hmm. on which one I could do. Sometimes I feel like we aren't in a profession that celebrates the things outside of playing that awesome lick on the stage. And that's, that's kind of a, a lot to take in because I felt like I then actually had to make a choice. All that said, <laughs> having lived more life, I am determined thus far, the whole be positive blood type, I guess. Okay. <laughs> but I am determined to say that no, I can be on the stage, but I'm also gonna find a way and carve a path, whether the industry wants it or not, so that the message of music that I have in my heart can be shared with the world, and that my perspective on how it can be used as a tool to help others is amplified by the work that I do on the stage. Uh, and here we are. <laughs> do I have an exact answer? No. I talk to my students about this all the time because for those, for those who are listening who have done the, the classical music route, there aren't a lot of options offered to us. I tell people this all the time. I graduated with a degree. I have a piece of paper that says I play the bass. <laughs> That's what I have. Um, uh, and everything is about winning the job or getting the chamber music gig or getting that solo gig and getting that contract. Very little of it is about sharing what we do. And some people are, might argue, and this is, I mean, I mean I, this can be a two-way conversation. Feel free to write messages in the comments. But people, people might argue is that, oh, I am sharing. That's me giving, that's me playing. And I am not trying to downplay that. So for anyone who's, who would say otherwise, absolutely that's not the case. But I think for me, there is more. And I, I would surmise that there are folks who have been in this profession a long time, who have played Heldon Laban for the 100th time, who might agree with me. That there, there, there is, there, there is, and there can be more. Something that does not bring down or degrade the wonderful art that we do, but actually does the complete opposite. It amplifies it in a way that uh, more people appreciate it, can, it will accept it into their, into their life, and makes it better. Uh, I think for anyone who talks about, or, or who, if you talk to someone in education, one of the best things I, I, it's one of the best things I could have done for my playing is start teaching lessons. Because being able to work with young people, hearing their perspective, hearing their life experience, and, 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 and just even the community connections, whether it's t teaching lessons or just being in a community, being exposed to different genres of music, learning how our language of music is the same. We haven't even talked about me growing, growing up. I didn't grow up in this classical music dome, cathedral, singing Mozart masses every Sunday. I was at Connor Simple Baptist Church singing gospel in the choir every Sunday and Tuesday and Friday, because that's when the rehearsals were, <laughs> or Thursday. Um, uh, and that's the music that resonated with me. And there's so many, there's so many rabbit holes in this conversation that that alone could go, and I'm gonna stop there, except for to say, it's take it took me longer than one would have ever imagined, to not say that the the gospel music that I grew up with was something that would inhibit my growth and development as a classical musician, but something that made it better. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. One billion percent. And I'll tell you why. Because in gospel music, you don't audition to sing in the choir. I think any, any person who goes, at least not my church choir, 
You don't audition. You just show up and you sing and you make a joyful noise. It's all about the expression. That's what, that's what, that's what music is. It's all about the expression. And collectively, the, all those noises make a joyful noise that we are able to com have this communal experience together. And I feel like in, in classical, you aren't taught to, that's not the first way we look at it. It's all about perfection. You have to play. These things are important. I am not saying these things are not scales, technique, arpeggios, intonation, rhythm. All these things are important. But it's not the goal. It's a means to the goal which is to make a joyful noise. This was the essence, too, of my questions about intrinsic motivation yeah. and the, the engagement yeah. that one feels. And actually, that was some of the questions that I got from the, the class when I was at Penn, asking these innocent, well-meaning, but pretty pointed questions yeah. about why do people move more at the front of the, like closer to the person waving their arms? Yeah. Why do those people seem to move more and then the people in the back? Yeah. Or the people who were farther away. Right. They didn't even know the word back in right. front. Like, it was very interesting. Yeah. And so we talked about engagement and, like, engagement style or, like, is it being about close to the epicenter of something right. and then having that radiate closer so you... Be, or is it, as another person said, maybe it's pre-selected yeah. that way that appears after a process is over. Right. Uh, like, an audition process is over. You're, you end up gravitating towards that. Yeah like in our in our world in leadership role. Yeah. But, I love joyful noise. <laughs> and I and I and then carry that on to the stage. I feel like that's what I bring particularly now unabashedly to the stage. Cause people say, oh, well you smile and you're moving. It's because the music I am playing is not the end. The music I am making is the end. Does that make, does that, does that, that, is that? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's, not the, it's not the notes. That's what I thought when I talk about music to my students. Like, the notes on the page, that's the only way the composer could, can speak to us. That's the only way. But, it's, it's, but we're supposed to be, we bring it to life, which frees us from the page, and then the music becomes us. So, in that way, I mean, to bring it back to, to this, this work, I'm excited to talk about the possibilities. I'm excited about making a joyful noise <laughs> um, uh, about who we are, what we can be, and what the future of this profession um, uh, can mean to a society. Because I, again, I, it, to me, it's, it's only exciting. Yeah, only exciting from here, here out. Let's make a joyful noise. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's so great to finally be in this space together and creating um, a trusted space that where we can share our thoughts and invite our friends and colleagues and um, other voices from other other arenas. Absolutely. To lend perspective um, on what we're doing because we believe in it. Yeah. We believe in it. And yeah. we're finally, it's like hitting record on our conversations yeah, for over 25 absolutely. years. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Because I, 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 when thinking about the industry, there's so much doom and gloom written about it. And all I see is potential. That's literally all I see. That's, I, I don't see any, I see zero doom and gloom and I see all potential. Just because I feel like if we realize music in the way that I feel it can be realized and I've seen it be realized, mm -hmm. um, then the sky's the limit <laughs> on, 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 yeah, the future of what we do and what it means to people and how concerts are, the celebration of what we've uh, been able to um, achieve as a community. Yeah, this, so. is, this is like why we're an optimist's playground. That's right. Because... Um, this is all about, this is also incorporating positive psychology elements and the flourishing and the well-being and the thriving elements of the human experience yeah. and the science from that yep. so that we can create the space together focused on our music making and opportunity providing for the next generation. Um, and actually on that note, um, one thing we're going to be doing 
um, kicking off every every episode is with an activity called One Good Thing. This is going to center us as we start our conversations, and it's something that brings connection and openness, and it orients us to the positive. It's like shining a flashlight in a, in a dark room so that what we pay attention to is actually our experience. So we want to ask ourselves and invite you to think about this as well, those of you listening, what is something meaningful? What is something we're grateful for recently? So Joe, would you like to share Ooh, something to help? Putting you? me on the spot. <laughs> um, sure. I feel like everything I'm going to talk about is going to be always going to be some practical thing. Is I, I, I will try to make it, I can try to connect it to, to um, uh, something greater. But like today, I was at the gym and it was deadlift day. Deadlift is one of the hardest days of the gym for me because it's a lot of weight that I have to push. Can you tell us how much? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I guess I don't lift for... Um, what's it called? I don't lift for the amount of weight. Uh, not so much anymore. I kind of stopped doing that after my 20s. So now I, 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 I will do a certain amount of weight and just do a, a increase the number of repetitions because that's a little safer. And, um, but then we I want get... you to play bass for a long time. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and so today I told my last, set, I'll just talk about my last set. My last set, I was 315 pounds. And I did, well, I'm actually, well, my first set of three. First set of three, 315 pounds. Um, I did 34 repetitions in my first set. And then wow. in my teens and the other two sets. So it was a total of 70. Um, wow. 70 deadlifts, 315 pounds today. And the, the good thing about that, if there's anything good about it, because it's really exhausting, to be honest, <laughs> is the fact that I hit 34. 34 is definitely the upper echelon of number I can hit when doing deadlifts. And in the last year or two, I've been very, I've given myself grace and space to not have to say I have to hit a certain number with deadlifts, mainly because they're so dangerous. You can really hurt you. So this is our disclaimer. So anyone do not try this, this at home. Do not try this at home. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, please don't, because you can really hurt yourself. And uh, I've only injured myself in 20 years of lifting, maybe three times, twice with deadlifts. Um, nothing major, major, but enough to feel it and remember it. So I, I've given myself grace. What has happened? Yumi Kendall, is as I've given myself grace, the amount of effort that it takes for me to hit a high number is um, way less than it used to be. When I was saying I want to hit 34, all I'm thinking is, oh my goodness, I have to do one, two, three, like it takes But since I don't put a limit and allow myself space, hitting these higher numbers is actually easier. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, please. Calvin and Hobbes. Do you remember Calvin and Hobbes? Yeah. There was one where he was jumping rope and he starts out being like, 1,572! 1,573! And he's like, gosh, this is easier the higher the number. If you just start out this high, you know, it's great. <laughs> I have so much time between them to say each rep. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Um, so it's a mindset. It's a lot of it. It's, it's a, a mindset. mindset. And it's a mindset thing that I feel... And I'm going to, I teach a lot. So um, speaking with like young people, um, I think sometimes if we don't allow ourselves the grace to just learn and then be in a space where we can learn, make mistakes and grow at our own pace, it could actually be detrimental. Not even to our playing, but to our own mental health because we're striving for something so hard that we don't allow ourselves to say like, it's okay to have a day where I only played three hours or something like that when I'm in school. It's okay that I didn't hit the lick today. And, but as long as the long range goal is just, I'm always gonna put my best effort, then I think the overall product might get us where we wanna go faster than to put so much pressure on oneself. So that's my one good thing. Wow. <laughs> that is an extensive one good thing. <laughs> Thank you for sharing. Um, let's see, I'll share one good thing recently. Um, I got my bow rehaired yesterday. Ooh. 
And for me, that's something very needed and simple in terms of my instrument, but it's such a fresh, simple start. And I feel like I have a clean slate. My, my cello feels great. It's like a new voice found again. Um, and I'm just grateful for that. And I think between the two of our examples, it's a great way of showing the different kinds of perspectives we can have on our one good thing mm -hmm. activity. So for those of you listening in and who would like to share yours with us, um, we'd love to hear from you. Um, I often do this exercise at the beginning of the day. What am I grateful for? What is a goal that I have today? What intention do I have for the day? And it can be short and simple. It can be full of breadth and depth. Um, like the magnitude of how Joe was explaining his one good thing um, to something more simple, like I'm grateful for the roof over my head and having a safe place to be. Um, these, we, we welcome all of it, and we'd love to hear from you about this experience. And we will be doing this one good thing activity pretty much every episode, as well as inviting our guests. So we look forward to hearing from you. Thanks so much. Yeah. Okay, so <laughs> that was a fun conversation. Uh, but to lighten things a little bit, uh, we, uh, as part of the podcast, well, we talked about having one good thing. Uh, I guess this is one good thing to help in every <laughs> episode. <laughs> and this is something that uh, kind of pulls from my Instagram account where I do this name that tune segment, which kind of grew out of just playing random excerpts and having folks guess uh, from the double bass part what piece it was. So we thought that might be a fun way to end uh, every episode with the show. So it could be short. It could be from opera, symphonic, symphonic rap. Um, but what we're going to ask is that if you do recognize what this tune is, that you submit your answers via the question box on our Instagram stories. So upon the release of this episode... Go to our Insta stories, and uh, you'll be able to write in the answer. And from the multitudes of correct answers so that I know we will, we will receive, we'll choose one winner to receive, wait for it, a jar of Joe's Jam. <laughs> so what is Joe's Jam? Joe's Jam is actual jam. It's delicious. <laughs> it's a, a spiced pear jam. Um, thanks to a guy named Mike Roberson out of uh, Savannah, Georgia and Savannah Sauce Company. The, all the proceeds from um, the purchase, so if you don't win, you can still purchase your own jar. All the proceeds <laughs> from a jar of Joe's Jam um, goes to Benefit Project for 40. Every single bit of it. Uh, but if you do name the tune correctly, you get your jar for free. And we ship internationally, too. So if you're listening in who knows where, uh, just give us your address. And as long as you can receive mail, we'll get it to you. <laughs> um, and for those of you perhaps not on Instagram, we'll, have, um, we'll be accepting emails yes. at tacitnomore.com. Perfect. So, remember, you can submit your answers via Instagram or send us an email at info at um, And if you want to learn more about Joe's Jam, please sure to check out the link in our Instagram bio or whatever social media bio. We'll have a link for you to click on so you can also purchase your jar, your jar of Joe's Jam. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. To those who are still listening, to making it to the end of our first episode. Yeah, we're so excited. Actually, we have on deck um, three special guests yes. and another exciting episode with some students. Um, let's see. We'll have Karen Slack, soprano. We'll have Vijay Gupta, violin speaker and multifaceted citizen artist. That's right. And uh, oboist Catherine Needleman. And we will also have a group of students from the National Orchestral Institute. And we're excited to have and host everybody on this and hear their voices. Uh, you may find us on Instagram at tacitnomore and email at info at tacitnomore.com. 
Please share the show on social media or leave a rating and a review. Tacit No More is produced by Joseph Conyers, Yumi Kendall, Andrew Meller, and Lindsay Sheridan. Any views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not reflect any entities with which they are associated. In our next episode... You know, by the time that uh, 2018 rolled around, which was my last year in the LA Philharmonic, I had been burned out for several years. Um, and I think it, it took me some time to realize that, that I would be backstage um, finishing up grants to the NEA and the California Arts Council while wearing my tail, um, like until the very last moment. Um, and then I would walk out on stage and play, and then play, and play Mahler Nights. Yeah, and that's, that's, that's my question for you, Joe, is like, you know this feeling too, you know, and, and you know, those of us who are involved in citizen artistry, I think there's this kind of pernicious hierarchy that gets talked about with regards to if we are community-minded or we have skills or interests in other arenas. I have perceived that somehow it is uh, assumed that we do not take our music making as seriously. <laughs>